Welcome, movie lovers, back for another Anatomy of Movie. Today, we discuss Jordan Peele's directorial debut with Get Out, so stay tuned. But Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Just the other couple of months, I guess, we were listening to this song, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and oh, what a joyous song that was in that. And now we listen to it, and it brings nothing but horror to our lives. Yeah. Because contextualize and get out, it is one of the more freakishly creepy songs I've heard in a while. We have Dimitri Panos, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, movie fans. How yeah. is everybody? We have Marissa Seraphine. Hello, everyone. I guess, I guess uh, nobody wants to answer how is everybody. <laughs> Alive. I'm good. 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 I'm good. Uh, we all made it to the end of the film. <laughs> we all did. We all did. Um, what a, to me, just a fantastic movie. Can't wait to talk about it. Um, th- there's a couple of moments where, like, I get a little bit. I, I will admit that I, I get more excited sometimes talking about a movie like this than perhaps what the final result could have been. Sure. You know, so it, to me, it's it's like a fine wine. It 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 it, it does better with age in a way. And the mm-hmm. more I think about it, the the better it becomes. But Marissa, why don't we kick it off with, with the ladies? I mean, I can I can kind of agree with that assessment. Overall, I thought this was a fun movie, and you both of you know how much I don't do well with horror. I've been to horror um, movies with you. I, yeah, and it's I'm, awesome. I'm the entertaining person, being like, "What are you doing, you idiot?" Um, yeah, I'm that person um, in a less obnoxious way, hopefully. Uh, but I thought this film was fun. I I don't want to start off negative, but I think my only thing about this film was I couldn't tell what genre it was trying to categorize itself in. I I felt like the first 10 minutes, it was like a romance kind of film. And then the second 20 minutes was like a drama kind of film. And I couldn't tell if it was comedy or if it was horror. I didn't, I don't think it really tried to hone in on a specific demographic for this film. If it was like just catered towards the teenagers who would enjoy this or the young adults who would enjoy it or the thriller or the you know the the horror fans you know i felt like it tried to hone in on like so many different genres that i couldn't tell once it got to serious moments i was like i'm not sure if i should be laughing or if i should actually be afraid i'm gonna explain to you but first dimitri (laughs) Well, uh, well you know uh get out is my fave film of february uh, hands down. Um, to me, Jordan Peele uh, delivers a horror film that harkens back to some of the greats to me um, in the genre, like uh, Carpenter, Romero, Hitchcock even, uh, Craven, and De Palma, just to name a few. Um, you know, Peele studied his craft. He knows his craft, and he's obviously a fan of the horror genre. And What's amazing about this movie, too, is he has an understanding of the genre. Above and Beyond, uh, Get Out is more than just a slasher film, okay. so to speak. You know, And what's great about it, too, is he fills every inch of that canvas, the silver screen, and it's filmed in scope, okay? And he draws suspense by not only what you don't see, but by what you do see. Hitchcock was able to do that. Carpenter did it. There's a shot that is so Carpenter-esque. John Carpenter, that is. Mm -hmm. And it looks as if it had come right out of Halloween. Uh, It's an amazing shot where it's a close-up, sort of like of the house, okay? And the camera starts to pull back. 
And as it pulls back, we see what fills the right-hand part of the screen is the back of what we know to be the gardener. You know, but it's just his back, and it's such a Halloween type of moment because that's what John Carpenter did a lot in Halloween. We saw Michael Myers from the back. He would come into frame as girls are walking down a sidewalk. I love that aspect of the movie. Um, he, he, as good as he is as directing, though, I have to say I have to give it to the cast as well. This Daniel uh, Kaluuya. I hope I'm pronouncing his name. Correctly, of Black Mirror fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he is spot on as the Hitchcockian everyman who's entangled in this web, and he's like just trying to parse things out. Like, what the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. Thought he was great, and then Allison Williams, I thought was excellent as a as a as a horror femme fatale. Peel's script is clever, and like great horror movies, it it's there to scare. Okay. But if you want to take the time, like we're going to take the time here, you can peel the layers back. And it's just as good to make you, like, scare you, make you jump out of your seat. But if you want to look beyond the jumps, you can peel back those layers for an astute social commentary. Like any good horror movie, whether it be Wes Craven or or even John Carpenter or Toby Hooper will do. Um, You know, the movie is not without its comedy as well, and it never felt, to me, it never felt forced. It came in at just the right time to break the tension just a little bit, give us a little bit of a breather, and it's all part of the story, and it'll leave you applauding at times as well. Uh, You know, you'll not want to get out of the theater while watching Get Out. Well, um, so to (laughs) kick things off for me, you know, never has there been a movie where the TSA was so welcomed. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think so, there ever will be. Sure. Um, so that said, now, I'll start off, I guess, addressing Marissa's points, and then we'll sort of careen back in and, and take it from there. But, um, you know, I, I sort of had the same sentiment as you, Marissa, in the sense that, okay, what's going, what, what sort of genre is this? Um, because it wasn't laugh out loud funny, but it was funny. And it wasn't um, fully suspenseful, but it was suspenseful. And by the end, uh, you know, unfortunately, I feel in a sense robbed because I can't ever fully quite have the experience that if I was a, you know, just an African-American or whether a guy or girl, but I feel like I'll never have that feeling because ultimately, you know, where you're left with, should I laugh? Should I cry? Should I this? I think you're supposed to do all those things bundled up into one because it is funny because it's being presented on screen, but the real life sort of implications that it ties into are that horrific. Yeah. And so you're left with like <laughs> yeah, well, that sort of sentiment. Well, it's like, it, again, it, it hones on the idea like you don't know if you should laugh or not because you don't want to like come across racist or anything like that. Or, you know, the, the subtext, the, the racist undertones of this. And like, is it funny because it's just a f- funny joke or is it funny just because the uh, the culture made it funny, you know? Yeah, well, I, you know, I can attest to what you're saying, but before I go into my experience of laughing and make, perhaps being looked at as a racist, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, of moder- of recent times within the past 10, 15 years, the closest that I can compare this to is, is Scream. Um, those, those movies were always satire and meant, to an extent, 
to have comedy in them. You mean Scream uh, or Scary Movie? Scream. Scream. I mean okay. Scream. If you watch Scream, Scream is a satire of horror movies, and it's yet very suspenseful. But there are parts of it, if you're a horror fan, you can sort of, like, get the joke, and you'll laugh at it. Now, to me, every, like, a decent horror movie, in one way, shape, or form, should lighten the tension. There's got to be something to, to j- just break the tension for even, albeit for a few seconds... But I also find that humor draws you to a character. Uh, if a character is able to make you laugh or whatever, you're drawn to that because a good horror movie, as I've described on this show before, and you and I had a conversation actually when we were sitting in a movie theater to watch uh, oh, yeah. Annabelle. Annabelle, oh my God. Horror, <laughs> like a good horror movie should be like a thrilling roller coaster. It should ratchet you up, bring you to the tallest heights, and then drop you and make you, like, scared. But then there's a little breather. You take a corner or something. And horror should do that as well, but it should also draw you in on its characters. So even a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, by Toby Hooper, a very intense movie. But at the beginning, you're sort of drawn into the to, the, to those hippie characters, and in part by humor. Even if you look at a Halloween movie, if you look at the original Halloween, the dialogue between the girls is somewhat humorous. And then the backdrop is there's a serial killer, or, or there's a stalker uh, in their midst. So humor, even in a Rosemary's Baby, you know, or, or even in The Exorcist, you know, there's little there, there's little nuggets. I'm not calling them comedies, but it helps break the tension. And for an audience, it helps you empathize with the character because you you sort of kind of want the break. You don't want to be on the edge of your seat like forever. But I think this movie ratcheted it up great, and the humor of it, whether it be the TSA guy or you know certain satirical comments brought at that party. Uh, the auction, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that's sort of kind of what it was, right? It was, because especially if you didn't know, it, okay, we're going to go play bingo and then just. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I thought that the comedy in this movie, and again, it's not a comedy. Uh, to me, this is a, a horror movie. Um, but it helped break the tension, but it never felt forced to me. Now, you brought up the fact. Do you feel racist if I laugh at this movie? I right. think you, you were talking about that, too. Let me tell you. I, I, I saw this movie in Baldwin Hills. That's that's the area in which I live. It's predominantly an African-American theater. Theater was packed. <clears throat> I was... I was, uh, I was definitely the minority, okay? And I was with my neighbor, a uh, great guy. And, <laughs> you know, I gotta say... There were parts that I laughed at, and I was like, but yet that there were some other people who were making commentary while watching the movie out loud, <laughs> like, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, and then if I laughed, I was like, ooh, are they going to think that, that that whitey over there is, like, racist? But I'm like going, you know what? This movie wasn't made f- just for the African-American audience. A movie has to transcend that. Okay, and we have to be able to laugh, even as Caucasians. We're not here at this panel or part of this corporation. We're loving people, right? To laugh at this movie, I think you're meant to. We can laugh at ourselves, 
laugh at the social commentary of the movie, and be comfortable with it that we're not racist because we get the joke that the character is going through whatever. So when they say something that's off-color like, I'm a fan of Tiger's, Tiger Woods, because they're talking about golf, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, you just feel embarrassed for the white race. But I, as a white person, can laugh at that because, like, that's just like, oh, you're such an idiot. (laughs) You know, or if I could have, I would have voted for Obama for a third time. (laughs) You're like, yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) We get the joke. Why? Because we're good hearted people. That's why, you know? Well, yeah, and you're, you're right. It does start there. I think, in terms of its message, if you want to convert anybody, you can't just, you know, have people. Of of who it's you can't necessarily preach to the choir, right? Um, and so in that regard, it's good to but uh, to, to sort of have it expand beyond its sort of core demo. Um, but let's uh, let's veer back and then we'll uh, then we'll dive back into this stuff. Let's start give or take eight years ago when Obama was voted into office, and that's at probably the time that Jordan Peele first had the idea, um, and he'd sort of been working on it at. From my understanding, you know, Night of the Living Dead, um, huge fan of that simply because there was an African American character that's, you a know, protagonist. What, protagonist, Absolutely. That, that, that was very much towards the end. Um, typically in horror genre, they're meant as the throwaway character, but not in Deep Blue Sea. No. Although Cool J survives. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. And he was also religious in that film, too, yeah. so I think that helped him. Yes. Um, so there, the, the, he drew inspiration from that. And as well as the Stepford Wives. And he was trying to uh, sort of come up with this, but he never really showed it to anybody until he felt it was at a place that he could. Um, and in terms of, you know, people cite him for being a great, like he studied horror. Well, for, um, in an interview that I read from him, he said, listen, we, we did sketches with, with Key and Peel, over 500 of these things. So we got to hone our genre senses through each of them, you know. Yes, they were comedy, but they played around the genres throughout. And so, you know, it's not like this is his first time going into, quote, horror. It just happened to be the first time going in at a, at a feature length. So, um, you know, and obviously he, you know, uh, I, I think that's that's a great way to look at it because, yeah, he made 500 short films. And now not only can he do horror, I'm, I imagine he can do tons of other stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah, and Keen Peel is great, and I'm not one to really like actually go out of my way and watch a lot of comedy, but I do watch Keen and Peel. I've I've watched a lot of their seasons, and I I think their their humor is just so intelligent and smart, and how they execute it, it's done in a funny way, but still yet poking at the the general issues that the you know pop culture has. But at least they're self-aware of it, and they make fun of it in a smart, intelligent way that other people can laugh about it. And I think they did a great. Jordan did a great job in this film doing that in extended hour and a half film. You know? Yeah, I mean, one thing. Again, one thing I always talk about too. Uh, we'll talk genres of horror and other genres. Okay, in science fiction, I always say sci- good science fiction is always a reflection of society. You know, you hold a mirror up to society. It's about the human condition. Horror is born of the times, okay? It really is. And it's not necessarily you hold a mirror up, and it's about the human condition. But it's born of the times that we live. And again, when you look at some of the greats, like going back, Toby Hooper, uh, Wes Craven, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, uh, even John Carpenter's uh, Halloween, 
again, these are movies that you can sort of peel back layers and you can see from which the time in which they had come out, what was sort of kind of going on and what the feeling was and what their, where that, that deep-rooted sense of horror is. This is a sign of the times. Um, it has been, and, and it becomes more relevant today. And this is what I really think makes this movie special. And Peel was able to do it. You know, he appreciates the fact we deal with our troubles and fears through this visceral, and yet horror is also a cathartic experience. So, uh, you know, I, this is where horror can really work. And if you don't want to think about this stuff, right, you can just go and go along for the hour and 40 minute ride and just be scared. Have popcorn, jump, you know, your popcorn will get over the person next to you. And you're going to be happy with it. Um, but if you want to do what we're doing... Well, let's... let's um, you know, I know we talk story. Let's... I, I, I want to start with breaking down specific... You know, we won't necessarily get to all the moments, but I want to break down certain <clears throat> genre tropes and get your guys' perspective on it. Starting with the opening sequence. Uh, beautifully shot. But typically, right, it, it, it's, it's your... You know, Jaws, you have the teenagers on a boat, and boom, they're going to die. It's just the throwaway. Uh, but it introduces us to the monster, less so the character, right? Just more of the monster. And so we, we sort of get that where as, as um, he's walking, he's lost. And as we play that uh, Run Rabbit Run song, um, you know, that's what creates the horror. But unlike in typical um, convention, he's well aware of the situation. He's like, oh, no, not today. I know how y'all do in this neighborhood. Right. And he wants to get out. Yeah. Um, so right off the bat, you're sort of, sh- you know, that in its sense is a tonal shift of, of what uh, the horror convention could be because he's well aware of the situation he's in and, and he doesn't want to be in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I liked it. it. It definitely set up for you think this is going to be horror. This is how it is. And like reading into it, you can tell like it's probably rich people who are causing this, you know, situation happening and abducting people. Um, men like this and uh, but also within this two minute scene of him walking around and his his own personal commentary again I couldn't tell if it was horror or if it was comedy because he was self-aware of this situation he made jokes about it I'm like should I laugh or should I be afraid for him and I I think it was a, a good setup however we didn't really see that that was like a quick abduction compared to what the whole movie was, which was a slow burn abduction. Right. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make one other comparison to the opening <clears throat> because you're right. It's like we he's self aware of the situation. Okay. I'm gonna go back to another movie that blends horror and comedy perfectly is John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. Hmm. Okay. The opening or the first 10-15 minutes of, in that movie when our weary travelers come across <clears throat> the tavern and they're leaving the tavern and they're told stay on the path beware the moors watch out for the full moon. They're given three rules which they instantly break yeah. but they're very self-aware of their situation. They're like Oh, beware the full moon. Oh, there's a full moon. All right. Well, we got to stay on the path. Shit. Oh, we're in the moors. They're v- Jack, what are we going to do, Jack? I don't know. What is that sound? They're very self-aware, much like our opening character here. It's like, I got to get the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get out of here. And, the, and again, what is great about that scene is 
it's it's scary. It's just as scary about what we see. It's an innocuous white car that just drives up, comes yeah. back, parks, <laughs> right? And then the way that it's filmed, we get the good jump. Like, we got a really good jump out of that scene. To, you know, it's just very well done. Uh, and again, self-aware, a little bit of comedy. And then, the like, you laugh, it gives you that breather, and then it just reels you back in. So it was ex- ex- expertly executed, I felt. And you don't even see who it is, too. That's the mystery. Yeah. It's like, oh, who's, oh, am I going to find out what this is? What's going on here? And then we find out that it's... Oh, it's that guy who shows up a little bit later on in the movie, looking completely different, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's well a, done. It, it's a quite a while. Um, <clears throat> the other moment for me um, early on was, was with the cop, right? So, it, I mean, how many... We've seen a lot of these sort of scenes where there's there's an animal, they, it gets hit, and then we're sort of dealing with that. So, um, at first, it was like, oh, what are we doing here? Um and we get the cop. This is, to me, what I loved about this scene was that it was a total misdirection. In the sense of, with, with her, um, if you look at it, in hindsight, she's, she doesn't want the cop to know his identity. It's a foreshadow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a po- but in the moment, you're buying into it. Wow, look at this goody-goody two-shoes. You know, she's trying to protect him. Now, forget the fact that she's preventing him from saying anything. <laughs> And she's like, no, I got this. Um, but yeah, I, I liked how that played into it. That was very, that was a very well executed scene, in my opinion. Agreed. I have a, actually, I have a list of um, misdirects and foreshadowing that the movie shows us, and that that one being one of them. And you don't think about it until later. Yeah. Me, yeah, it's much later. Much <laughs> like, later. Once you get out of the theater, later. Once it's too well. At that point, you don't. For me, I didn't. You know, I was very much like, okay, there's something creepy here. But I never thought her to be the most evil of evilists until very much like with Chris, it was too late. Yeah, and what I liked about that that cop scene was that because it is rooted in truth, you know, and because we hear all these stories about racial profiling, especially from police officers against <laughs> black men, in, which is really sad, and I, I think it was smart how they touched upon it and immediately put a kibosh on it, but at the end of the film, it completely just puts a twist on it, and I think it was just well executed. Well, it's a twist, but there's a good twist to it too because what she was quote unquote trying to avoid at the beginning she was hopefully going to rely on at the end yeah. okay so like that 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 gag let's call it okay was very well executed because like a joke it had a loop that closed it did you know it did. and it was very smartly done so where she was protecting at the end at the beginning, I'm sorry. At the end, she was hoping to rely on it. Help me! <laughs> when when we see a cop car come up, uh, you know, and then when it zooms in, you know, airport. airport. <laughs> I'm like, oh, awesome! <laughs> Let me tell you, my crowd in that scene, but it rose the roof with like, they were like, uh, yeah. it's a great, it's a crowd pleaser because <laughs> you're yeah, rooting. You yep. know, you're rooting yeah. for them. Yeah. So, um, you know, something really funny, interesting, too, while I was doing research on Jordan Peele, um, uh, 
found this great uh, thing on The Verge, and he, he said, you know, uh, developed over, over late, over about eight years. But he went on to say that he didn't, race wasn't the initial spark of this movie. He wanted to make a movie about social fear and anxiety we all have about being the outsider in any group. And again, that's where horror works. It shouldn't just be about so specific. And I think he he succeeded, but he realized it could be a focal point, and that was where his instinct was coming from. So it's interesting that race wasn't necessarily his spark, but the genesis of the idea is because we can all feel like outsiders. That that doesn't matter, whatever color or race or religion, we can feel like that. And, you know, that's what makes horror, in a sense, in this case, too. That's what I think can make this universal, unless you are a racist, racist bigoted pig. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, there's a lot of, I forget who compiled it, but, like, um, 30 of, like, the greatest tweets about um, about this. Um, hmm. and, and some of them are very funny, um, you know, because, like, for example, you know, it, there's there's like pictures of interracial couples and, and you know there's hashtags of yeah you know, what's going on here. My favorite though is um, there's a picture from the movie that says I just realized why the girl uh, was eating Fruit Loops and milk separated together. She was separating the whites from the coloreds. <laughs> I, I didn't even notice that. Well, because it was one of the, it was you know just Sorry. even in that movie it was just such a this point of you know she she would eat couple of the fruit loops and then she would drink some milk right but they were <laughs> they were separated it's quite interesting yeah. uh, so there's, there's been a lot of uh good comedy that's also come out of it um you know and to your point i guess let, let, let's move into the house now and uh you know talk about the various points there in terms of i don't know where, where do you guys want to start i have my agenda but if there's anything particularly jumping out at you guys. Can we talk about the hypnosis? Sure. Um, again, it, w- it was fun to watch, interesting more so, interesting to watch, but again, I wasn't sure if I should be afraid of of Missy during all this. I was like, oh, what really? is happening? <laughs> I was afraid. <laughs> yeah, I was, what is happening right now? And She's but, not giving him a choice. Like He never wanted to do this. He was like, I'm good, I'm good. And then right. she's like... Then the tea stirring and that sound was the like sound. done so well no. that like it, it's like nails on a chalkboard that j- and even that sound effect like kept playing throughout the whole film and like I thought that was done in the horror horror trope of like a, a certain sound effect that already instills this innate fear in you. Yeah, yeah it was, was the, the teacup that was the anchor. Um, you know, uh, it, it was done so well. That okay, so as the audience, I'm watching this going, she's hypnotizing him. I, he doesn't know it. Like he was basically being mind raped. You know, when you <laughs> yeah. that's what was going on. And uh it was really great seeing Catherine Keener, I don't think has ever been scarier. Oh, because know. she was so subdued. And like, you know, uh, if you listen to uh I don't know, you can go on YouTube uh, Howard Stern has hypnotists come on, and they're very, you know, it's about, it's all about their voice. It's all about the calming nature of the voice and whatnot. But her voice and <clears throat> her conversation, all the while with the, 
Now, the sign design in this movie uh, was, was brilliant, particularly in those scenes, because that had to come across as being there, but not taking over the whole scene, you know? But it had to be there, uh, so that it was almost like that heartbeat that's in a movie. Uh, that scene, and then... Um, what do they call it? The sinking place? The sunken place. The, the sunken, sunken place. place. Yeah, it's definitely not the happy place <laughs> that you go to on Splash Mountain <laughs> or something like this. You don't go to your happy place. The sunken place. What was very interesting about, to me, the sunken place as well as how everything to him sort of kind of looked like a TV. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you know, he's looking up. Sort of kind of, I sort of kind of had thoughts of the arrival. You know, long hallway and the and the and the square or the rectangular type screen uh, screen, but like his dilemma as a child while watching TV, he was seeing things almost as if he was in this out of space sunken place and he was well, watching ph- these people on a screen. It almost photography. Like. I mean, they played that very well. You know, he was always <laughs> behind the lens, and so I, you know. You do make that connection of, oh, him watching TV, now he wants to see everything through a lens, so that way, because he was paying attention to the TV, so if he hides behind the lens, maybe he'll be able to see the truth. Right. Uh, and he he was starting to, with his camera, to see the truth. Now, unlike with, with like, let's say, rear window, um, the camera didn't come into play at the end. It was just more of, get the hell out. Yeah. Right. Um, Hitchcock. So, so I did miss that sort of moment, but uh, that's just nitpicking. Yeah. You know, and if, yeah, I mean, I didn't think that the camera needed to. I mean, he was getting shots. The camera comes into play a couple of times, whether it's his digital, like, uh, SLR or, or his cell phone camera, which really... Well, it does come... Back. Yeah, I guess it does come back with the um, <clears throat> at the end with the shotgun. Right. Because that's what triggers that yeah. whole mm-hmm. scene. So, um, but that entire scene... And what's great about that is he has no recollection of it. But he's like, I think your mom hypnotized me. And she's like, oh, I'm going to say something. Because no, 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 I don't feel like smoking anymore. Yeah. But, you know, he tried to turn that negative into a positive. He's like, no. He goes, no, it's okay. I, I don't have that craving to feel like smoking and, and whatever. So he's like, oh, wow, it's sort of weird. And he goes, I don't remember anything of it. But, he but does, it, to me, he felt a little violated. Oh, how oh, could you for not? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're like, well, it's great, but just... You know, come on. Yeah. So, um, and you know what I loved um, the cell phone bit was a great gag. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and talk about like if you want to talk about cinematography and performance all at the same time, think of um, you know the, the maid right when she's when she's in that moment of trying to get out of her own mind right. She's in her she's in a sunken place. Um, she's trying to kind of at that point uh, sort of get out and be able to connect that frame is so shallow if she moves literally a centimeter left you know left right front back it goes out of focus are you talking about the scene oh, when that she's took in the place kitchen? in the bedroom in the bedroom we're talking about like, the cell phone yeah she's like you uh, you know i i'm not going to snitch and she's like tattletale yeah mm. and what, what's what's great about that scene too is, I the way it was shot so tight. Okay, and again, it's not about what you don't see; it's about what you can see. 
every time she took a step forward, I felt as if she was invading my space. I felt like taking a step back. It's like, you're getting too close. Like, <laughs> like, and it was just done. And again, it was so sharp and clear. Uh, it literally filled the screen. He used, obviously, he used scope for a reason. Uh, and for it happened to be an XD uh, at this theater that I saw it at. So it was on a premium large format screen. That scene was an uncomfortable scene. And yet it's sort of like you sort of laughed a little. But at the same time, you're like, I, I, gotta back, I can't back up in my seat anymore. You're getting too close. Well, she was reaching out for help, and then yeah. the way the way she like as long as that moment was her rushing out it was like yeah, it was, right. it was in an instant. So um. I thought that scene, the the bedroom scene, and the kitchen scene when she like was trying to see like the actual person underneath trying to get out. Oh, as yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that performance was great, especially yeah. like the tears just streaking down. Yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, something is happening, and that was intense too. Kind yeah. of framed the same way. Yeah. Um, and it's like, get out of my personal space right yeah. now. And I, I thought it was just great performance on both yeah. scenes, honestly. Yeah. And um, the other scene where he goes out prior to him being hypnotized for the first time when he goes outside to, to sneak that cigarette. And the gardener's <laughs> there. Yeah. And again, what's brilliant about that, and again, when you peel it back later, like the way he was running at him, it's like... Yeah, it's like, run. oh, he's great. Well, number one, my audience is saying, get the fuck, run! They're like, don't stand there. Get the fuck back in the house. Again, it's hard not to laugh when you have commentary going to the screen. But at the same time, you feel the tension that's in a crowded theater, which is it's a great movie going experience. But when we were talking about foreshadowing, that's a great scene because... Prior to that, when our hero is being given the tour of the house, and we come up up on the stories about granddad, grandpa, and like he always had it that that uh, Owens beat him, like in the race, right? Mm, yeah. This guy's running at him like a sprinter. He goes off, and then we come to find out that the gardener is harboring, you know, the good old grandpa, the racer. <laughs> Who never got over the fact that he was beat? <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's a great scene. It's a great scene. Although scary to watch, though I it mean, is scary like, to watch. And it doesn't matter like what race you are, but when you it see a a figure, a hooded figure, running towards you at night, like yeah, at your first full tilt. at full speed, <laughs> like your first instinct is to run. That yeah. whole fight or flight response, you you flight, yeah. you, you fly away. He was like a deer in headlights. And it was like What's the intense look, like I'm I'm coming right at you. That was just scary. Well, you, you know, so they they set up all these things well because it does come back later. Next time he runs after him, he tackles him. There's no yeah. doubt about it, which is what you think is going to happen in the first time around. Um, so it, it definitely it definitely has a lot of callbacks that that keep shifting. Absolutely, you know, and mm-hmm. even just. Even the Run Rabbit Run song, like as soon as he turns on that car, you hear that song coming from that car. You're like, oh right. god! <laughs> um, it just all makes sense. It all makes sense. Um, when did you guys? I want to ask you guys this. When did you guys realize that uh, Rose was on the evil side? Was it literally? I only realized as soon as we saw the pictures. Yeah. And which was too late, just like for Chris. 
Go ahead, Marissa. I I realize at the pictures, too, because, like, literally we had a long, beautiful, dramatic scene before the pictures. Um, And that kind of convinces the audience. It was like, oh, she's she's actually true and being genuine right now. Let's go home. Let's be a couple. Let's be in love and stuff. So, like, that scene completely threw me off of her character and I believed that she was a good person. And then five minutes later, we see this picture. So I was like, oh, now she's in on it. And that's like, yeah, the pictures gave that visual, you know, giveaway of what was happening. So, I mean, they did a great job of setting it up, though. It was. See that movie in Baldwin Hills. <clears throat> and that twist was not lost on the audience that I saw it with. Because uh, there was some woman sitting next to me. Well before that scene, they're like going, I don't trust that white bitch at all. Like she's in on it. I'm like going, how do you know? Like, and then look, again, you're right. The twist, the reveal, the reveal, and, and this is what makes a good twist too. We know when we are supposed to know, you know. And you go because once you see the pictures, you're like, oh. And there's a <laughs> there's a deeper feeling of dread. Like, the weight of that, like, just sort of sits on your shoulders. And you're like, oh, that sucks. And you're like, okay. But at that point, we also, as the audience, realize, along with our protagonist, it's too late. Yeah. Well, that, it, it's almost, it, it's a trifecta. Because at first, you, you, you sort of go through the progression, at least for me, was the fact, wait, she said she would never had a black boyfriend. Oh, but she did, so that means this. She might have had a black girlfriend. Or it could have just <laughs> been a college mate or yeah. something. Um, you know, and that, that's kind of, if you sort of look back on it and you're watching, there are there is the question of, like, I, I know she says to him, it's going to be fine, they're not racists. But there was no indicator of, like, oh, our daughter's with a black person. Oh, cool, yeah, okay, yeah. How's it going, my homie? Like, it, it never... Ha- I'd have to rewatch that, but it never had that sort of realization for them. Like, they were just too cool with it. And the reason why they were... Because they were expecting it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? There was no... There was no thought behind it. No. Um, so, uh, that that's... I, I love that portion of it. Did you cringe every time... Um, uh, what's, what's the actor's name who played the dad... Oh, Bradley Brad Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Every time he said, like, my man. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. Well, he was also in ha- um, um, Billy Madison as yeah. the uh, as yeah. the evil villain. And so I love him in that yeah, as well. No, he's he, great. he was great in this movie. Um, but it was almost like they went out of their way. Like... It's when it's sometimes when white people try to be black, it, it just you can't carry it off. And he was, they were way try. He was like way try to like go out of his way, and that too is a is a harbinger for that movie too. It's like, did you tell your parents? No. It, what's great about it is that she sells it as almost like a little bit of rebellious rebelliousness, going, eh, I'm just gonna spring it on them. Don't right. worry about it. They're not racist. My father's going to tell you he would have voted for Obama a third term if he could have, which mm-hmm. seems to be, he said, you know that he said that line to a everybody in the post Obama. Yeah, like you know, it was it, it was well rehearsed. Yeah, and because he does say it, he's, yeah. he does say it like right in the first five minutes that they meet. But at the beginning of the movie, 
you're not thinking foreshadow like you're thinking oh oh she's gonna guess who's coming to dinner <laughs> you know and she's just gonna spring it on him because there's a little bit of rebellious to him like maybe there's friction between the parents but then you know yeah. we find out that they were too cool that they were weird <laughs> yeah <laughs> well um you the only pe- the this is sort of interesting um i did I, I did a couple of polls one on Twitter, one on Instagram, and just to see you know, who liked that. the movie. And so, forty-three percent of people that, that um, voted loved it. Uh, only four percent hated it. Seven percent thought it was okay, and then forty-six percent said they didn't see it. But um, what was interesting, I you know, I'd love to have a little bit more insight into into that. Um, however, on Instagram, I won't name the people, but the only person to not like it was a white girl. I don't think that's coincidental. I, I actually do think that um, if there is anyone that's going to hate this movie, it's going to be white women. Because it, it, mm. it's too, I don't know, I don't want to say judgmental, but it speaks too close to home. And they don't feel comfortable with it. And they don't <laughs> understand the humor. I, I, I'm serious. Well, also I really f- do think that. I mean, I, I believe that too. But also, in fairness, the film doesn't portray white women in a positive light. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't think it's just the beliefs of the film itself, but it's the characters in the film, how they're represented. Right. So like, it might be, yeah, a white person might have disagreed with that. It could have been maybe the white person didn't like how the white woman was represented in yeah. the but, film. But here's what I'm saying. I caution all white women now by saying this. Eurotrip, great movie by my standard by my standard okay in it is a scene where they go to Schittsville Europe and guess where that is it's my native land and they make fun of it they make fun of it to no end for being poor for right. like what do we you know we have five nickels what are we gonna do with that and then like for a penny you can buy an entire hotel let alone like get a room <laughs> and I laugh because I understand the humor sure if you're what if you really are I caution it, all white women, to watch the movie, and if you're not a racist and that's not you, then you can laugh at it. Yeah. I think that goes for everybody, too. I want to pose a question that my neighbor posed, because before we went to the movie, uh, we were talking about it. Um, uh, his name's Ray, by the way, so I'll give him a name. His name's Ray, uh, and uh, uh, great neighbor and everything, but when we were talking about potentially going to the movie... Um, you know, he says, oh, that's the movie. He goes, uh, there's a lot of, like, some people are some people are walking away of that movie saying, like, it's a white hate movie. Like, oh, all right, I'll let you know. So we got out of the movie, and he was like, yeah, what did you think? He goes, did you think it was, like, white hate? And I first, you know, that's racist of you asking me, the only white guy in the theater. I go, no, <laughs> no I, said, <laughs> I said to him, I said, no. It was a good horror movie that I think that I get the message. I got the message, but... I didn't see it as a white hate movie. Not at all. If it was a white hate movie, I don't think it would have done as well. Okay? Um, And it definitely would not have been as good. Because then that meant that it would have had a scalpel precision agenda. Okay? And that movie did have a, you know, a social-political theme that you can talk about. But I didn't... Personally, I did not take it as a white no, I, I think I took it as a cautionary tale, and also a cautionary tale. Like, you know, in, in in the worst of ways, and just 
in the spirit of which this is intended. I know I'm probably going to get so much hate mail for this. But at least if you were a slave, at least you had the ability to, to be conscious of it and revolt. Here, you lost all... You were in the sunken place, whatever the hell that ultimately means. And you lost literally your soul. Yeah. So, uh, so in this regard, I don't, I don't know. I'll say this. I'll let people decide for themselves, but I would say this is way worse than, again, at least with slavery, you have hope. Which, if, I'll just jump ahead to, to illustrate my point so I don't sound like the biggest douchebag in the world. <laughs> uh, when it came to music... One of the hard parts they found was they wanted to use African-American music, but it always had a hint of hopefulness. So, like, we can't use that right. because there's hopefulness. We want it right. to be not as hopeful. Right. Um, and so I think you get where I'm going when they sure. both parallel each other. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Marissa. I mean, I, I, I can definitely... Save Phil. Save Phil. I think I'm going to step yeah. away from that. No. I, I can understand, like, the there's always that silver lining at the end. Yeah, it's it's terrible to go through, but, like, there's hope at the end, and there's there's a way to fight back and stand up for yourself. And I, I feel with his character, being in the second place, he, he lost control of and his ability to do anything about it. But I think the thing that saved him was obviously his smarts. Absolutely. And the, and the thing, it was more like street smarts in the fact that not to jump ahead in the film. But like at the end when he's finally, you know, attached to the chair and he plugs his ears with the, the stuffing stuff. I saw you that know? Um, but, I thought yes. it, I thought it was smart because it was his <clears throat> intelligence that kept him alive. A- am I the only one? <laughs> Fuck me if I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was very, like, imagine if, like, that's basically a black person being saved by cotton. It's as if he was picking cotton. Oh, my God. I did I, not even think about that. Be, but here's the thing. I actually don't think that wasn't unintentional. Like, I get it. It, it works out perfectly, but the, it's also a very powerful image of cotton. Scratching. Yeah. yeah. Nope. I didn't think that. I didn't think I'm that. sorry. Now that, now that I've seen it, now I can't get it out of my you head. said that. Way to go. Shoot. No, no, but, but, but it makes sense. And again, the mere fact that we're... Uh, this is what good horror like can be if you choose it to be this way like you could talk about that stuff and go okay there's, there's another of that layer that socio-political type of layer that and it works I don't find it being by you saying it being racist it just adds another level to there is an irony to it um yeah I didn't I didn't and even anything I've read that, well, I, I think it's a solid observation I guess what I'm saying is I'm hoping to be the negation of the negation. You know how, like, with the negation of the negation, there's the good person, there's the bad person pretending to be good? I'm pretending, I'm pretending to be a racist, but deep down I'm good. We know that's, that's I can vouch. I can vouch for Phil that he is actually a stand-up person and not, at the very least, racist at all. Nobody here is. But I think this is why we talk about it if we feel uncomfortable talking about it it's because of the fear it's because we're not we're not used to this is a this can be outside of our comfort zone yeah in a sense and we don't want to say the wrong thing and and uh you know listen it's one thing if i tell people you know if i'm talking about rogue one and i say the movie sucked for these reasons and people want to hate me for it that's fine but if we're talking about a movie like this which happens to be an excellent movie there are there are things that you that we try to be responsible for, 
And being that none of us is racist, that you don't, we don't want to offend. And but I don't think this movie was meant to offend the white person. And and again, even Jordan Peele will say, you know, this movie has to be an inclusive film. He goes, it doesn't work for everybody. Then it's not worth it. And we said that at the top. This comes from an article I found in the Boston Globe. There's the there's this mix of the movie itself being about the fact that there's never been a movie like this. Part of what's special about this movie is that it is about representation. It's about giving someone like me a chance and a platform to make a movie from my perspective and trust that an audience will come and see it. That's a fantastic perspective on his craft and filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like, even himself... I want everybody to see this movie, and that's what we we're talking. That's what we've been talking about. I think this entire time thus far. Well, I, um, <clears throat> I want to sort of sh- slightly shift gears. But, you know, talking about the the sort of creative process and having autonomy, right? A, a Blumhouse production um, done very cheap, but they generally tend to well, not cheap necessarily for them. Affordable. Um, there, th- this is on their higher budget of movies, technically. Um, but they give their directors autonomy, which, for, if you look at Blumhouse Productions, it seems to be they they have split, and now they have this. They're killing it. Yeah, but but the think about Blumhouse. Think about what they you know, think about what they've done and what they've accomplished. Okay, so so James Wan started off with Saw. Okay, that that started off at Lionsgate. Okay. I felt this film had a little bit of saw in it, just with the TV screen. So yeah, and 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 then think about what Blumhouse afforded him with The Conjuring, and then with the first two Insidious movies. Okay, very low budget, but really Saw was his jumping point. Okay, Blumhouse helped him expand, you know, and then he gets uh, the last Fast and Furious movie. Look at what they've done with other movies like The Purge. Okay. They they they, they take... And I think... Uh, didn't Blumhouse do uh, Lights Out? I think um, Blumhouse did Lights Out, too. Let me double check, but probably... <clears throat> I don't want to make an assumption. But I'll, I'll double check think, while you're talking. Yeah, please. So, Blumhouse is great at mining talent, giving that talent the room to breathe. And again, Blumhouse partnering up with M. Night Shyamalan... If ever a director who's really... already set in the horror <clears throat> thriller genre, they didn't exactly. do it, but they did a uh, Ouija Origin of Evil. Ouija, okay, which again, one of my favorite horror movies of last year. So so well done that again, and if anybody needed a break, if anybody needed to try to get back into the game, it's M Night Shyamalan. Okay, and they give them an opportunity with the visit, but they have faith in the people that they choose for directors. And writers and coming up with Peel. Look, uh, Sean McKittrick. Like I found this very interesting too. He connected through, believe it or not, uh, Keegan Michael Key. He's a good friend, and and you know Sean McKittrick's a good friend of him, and, and Key led him to Peel and said, "Hey, Jordan. Mainly Jordan is obsessed with horror films. He pitched the idea to Get Out. He's like, I never heard anything like it. He goes, Ah, we have to make this movie." And I think the Blumhouse is perfect for that because now they can give him another movie. You know, from what I understand, uh, Mr. Peel 
said that he wouldn't mind continuing and doing thrillers. He loves that genre so much. And look at this. You say that it's expensive, but well, expensive the production budget was 4.5 mil. It already made its money back. Okay. Mm-hmm. 4.5 million in the whole, like you could say it's expensive for Blumhouse, but on the whole grand scheme of things, it's really not that expensive compared to other movies. That's one twentieth of and, <laughs> right. whatever movie we just watched. Yeah, and their track record, uh, well, The Great Wall is, is, is a good example. Sure, right? The Great Wall, that's one twentieth of The Great Wall's budget. Literally, probably. Yeah, and so when you look at the dividends that Blumhouse is able to do, like Annabelle was wicked cheap, even the Conjuring movies. Well, horror films <clears> in <throat> really... general are... Very cheap. They can be, yeah. That that's one of the reasons why, as a genre, it's able to stick around and why it has staying power. But they got to be good. There was a time where the horror genre was almost dead. I mean, people didn't just people just didn't want to go because they were crap, and they were going straight to home video. They were becoming the B movies that horror mo- that everybody believes horror movies to be at that time period. And literally, and, and like, I just happened to be, I was, I was fortunate enough to be at Lionsgate at the time, where Lionsgate and this gentleman, Peter Block, and so, sort of reinvigorated the genre. You bring in Eli Roth, you know, he does Cabin Fever, okay, then he does Hostel, then you bring in Saw. But you don't just stick with that, you do other movies like Hot Tension, or even Open Water, which falls under that category, right? So... Right there, you see there's a variety. There's, like, slasherish kind. There's more suspense kind. Um, <clears throat> it opens it up, and then every other studio starts to do, you know, remakes of The Hills Have Eyes, you know. Texas Chainsaw. Uh, t- remakes of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I don't need to see another remake of that, you know. Friday the 13th. Well, if that reboot so was actually a really good reboot, I felt. I don't know what the hell Paramount's doing. They just took it off its slate. But again, it can be movies that are done cheap that audiences really like to go to. And being that it's a sign of the times, horror, you can sort of kind of compare it to comedy. Because when you're in a comedy, everybody laughing together, it's, it's infectious. When you're in a horror movie and everybody jumps together or screams together, if you're next to a person, even if you're by yourself... You Sometimes feel you can connected. do it to a person. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> even funniest. But like, trust me, and I've been there. I've been in the back of the theater, right? And I've watched a movie that I've already seen, so I know where the jump is coming. And to see the audience jump, it's almost like a wave at a baseball game. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> comes up and down. Uh, that to me is the visceral excitement of a horror movie. And then when you walk out, you're safe again. Like. You know, you, you feel good. You might have nightmares. Uh, I've had my nightmares here and there. But that, to me, is the visceral greatness of, uh, of a horror movie. Uh, and Blumhouse seems to have done it with great dividends at the end. Do it cheap. We're going to show people something original. You know? And, and uh, yeah, so Blumhouse is, is, is absolutely helped redefine the genre again and make it very mainstream. Mm-hmm. That I don't think people could have a hard time rep- replicating. But it follows the witch, not Blumhouse movies, but they're all very original and they're creepy and scary. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to more of the production side of things? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so in particular, I was I was blown away by the cinematography for a number of reasons. Uh, done by Toby Oliver, who um, I've heard of this movie. I don't know if you guys have heard of this movie, but uh, Wolf Creek Two. Mm-hmm. Um, done a bunch of other stuff as well. Mainly, kind of got his start in TV and went from there. Um, he's also slated to do Insidious Chapter Four. Right. Um, so he'll be doing that. Um, other stuff I haven't really seen or known of. Um, but it shocks me. Like after seeing this movie. I can't imagine people not wanting to utilize him. Like, just that, that first opening shot, the way it tracks. Um, I mean, that's Hitch, Hitch, uh, not Hitchcockian, or Orwellian. You know, it's uh, a touch of evil type of stuff. Um, and and even the, just the color, everything in, in, in the house, everything to me looks so bland. Neither, it was as if someone didn't actually white balance the film. Right. Because it wasn't neither warm nor blue. Their skin tones were kind of off. But it looked good for what it was. Like, I, I get what it was going for. Oh, yeah. I noticed in, in the house that, like, every room, just, like, even down to the teacups and just the, the items placed throughout the room, it looked antique. Like, old. Purposely old. And then when we found out with the, the family footage, like, they meant to keep it that way because it's really the older generation that's still living on. So it's essentially still their house that they're living in. So every object is still, like, antique, probably 30, 40 years old. And, like, nothing was really new. So right. it kind of gave that old-fashioned feel. Like, what kind of house am I in right now? Yeah. And, and um, you know, and again, it was almost... It was almost like a plantation. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. right? It was almost like a plantation. And think about the auction. Think about that garden party. Think about the isolation of that house, too. He's even said, my closest neighbor is, <laughs> Miles like, you know, what do you say, a boat ride away, something. Like you said, my closest neighbor is a little, you know, a long ways away. So um, it gave that sense of feeling with color tone cinematography again you said orwellian again my thoughts were too it was very john carpenter took horror into the suburbs it's one of the first movies actually that that brought horror to these suburbs and that opening shot too was the opening shot of halloween is a tracking shot that goes on for a very long time that starts exterior we go interior this movie was very exterior but it had followed him around. I was thinking of you, actually. Oh, well, I only say that because um, we talked about Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And we talked about uh, the opening tracking shot, how it kept on going around. Now, this movie didn't... That opening shot didn't do that a lot. But it did it that one time. But, like, did it... But it was calculated. It was very this was, calculated. Yeah. This was, was very, yeah. And and that was done on a steady cam, yeah. not by hand. Yeah. You know? But like True. Moonlight was like someone who probably had three pots of coffee and, and <laughs> shot it and was like erratic, no, no. wasn't controlled. Oscar winning <laughs> Moonlight. Yes. Not for cinematography. And but and then Halloween was very like you said, calculated. It was slow, but very it was calculated. well yeah. done. Visually it was aesthetically yeah. pleasing. Until to we come to that, that jump horror scene. Um Again, I, I just felt that Jordan Peele obviously is a fan, but he has respect for the genre. He did obviously he did not cheapen the genre uh, at all. Um, the movie is not exploitive, not 
that I have a problem with some exploitive horror movies. Like I said, I, I love the Friday the 13th movies, and those are as exploitive as you can get. Um, but yeah, no, his his was not exploitive in the least. And when it explodes with its violence, which literally comes in the last quarter of the movie, you know, um, but it's but it's great payoff, and it builds to those moments, um, you know. And again, you can't kill the guy. You can't like. I, I thought, you know, when the brother was down, I'm like, up, oh, he's dead. No, nope, comes back up for the jump. Of course, yeah, <laughs> but. It was well, every jump that happened in that movie, or every gasp of air that you took, it was really earned. Very well earned. I thought the deaths were earned as well. Absolutely. Especially because you mentioned the brother and how he died, but like even the father, because no. if you think about it, it was it's really ironic because he's like, every time there's a dead deer, you know, that's like right. ooh, the one less, you know, just, right. just like the de- degrading nature of, yeah, we got to eliminate the deer because there's too many of them. Right. And then the ironic thing at the end and just the irony and all, he gets killed by a deer. Yeah. And so I was like, I kind of loved it. It was poetic. Yeah, and the, there was another interesting facet of this movie too. Um, I could have found this. I forget if it was on a cinema blend. Um, he had other ideas for the endings, mm-hmm. um, in which it went much darker. And what I appreciate about Jordan Beale now as a as a as a filmmaker, as a storyteller in this, he was like, you know. It's, you know, it's something that I said in like about movies of 2016. They're just too damn depressing. Like, we, we're, we're living in depressing, interesting times now. Our movies should be trying to help us, like, feel better about something, whether it's a, a ribald comedy. He purposely said, he goes, no, I can't. Because I can't do it to the audience. Because I can't do it to them. I have to give him something to applaud at the end. He goes, this is a horror movie. He goes, I want my audience to applaud. It did. He delivered. Like, I actually, again, I walked out of the movie feeling like, all right, that had a good ending. That yeah. was solid. You know? And I, I hope I don't, I hope we don't see a, a, a sequel. I'm going to be honest. Get back in. Get back <laughs> in. Um, no, I'd be get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just felt... He's right. His, his, his instincts were correct in that you gave us a horror movie. You made us. You made us look at ourselves. You, you made this movie. You scared us. But when we're at the end of the day, we left. We applauded again. That scene when that police car comes up and you're like going, "Oh shit! It's probably that cop again." Yeah, I was thinking right. it was him. I was thinking it was that sheriff guy again. And she yeah. was like, "Oh really? Oh help!" help and then the audience knew and you didn't have to be white black brown or whatever you're like oh shit he's done for until it goes up to airport police you're like yeah (laughs) and that guy was hysterical oh can i just say he was hysterical i i loved it because he he was comedic 
from like the get go and the fact that like oh he he could be friends with Ariel like you never really thought that he was in it either especially when she was hitting on him or like right. having that playful friendship but I loved how he was consistent throughout he was figuring it all out the when the audience was figuring it out and yeah. even his comedic humor when he put it her on me like I know you're lying I, I know you're lying <laughs> <laughs> like it's so good but she wanted so his body good. see what she was doing she was joking yeah. she really wanted his body yeah. like, oh, that's some TSA <laughs> shit Ray Howard, he was hysterical but oh, when, he, when he's explaining it to what's mm-hmm. a TSA cop doing here at the he goes I gotta tell you something <laughs> and so he tells her, she goes, you know what, tell that to us again. And the other people come in and they all laugh at him. Look, you're like, it's it's like the little boy in Gremlins. It's it's like when, uh, not the little boy, but when the kid goes to the sheriff, he goes, sheriff, the oh, gremlins sure. running around. They're like, ha, 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 ha. They're laughing at him. It's the same convention. Yeah. It's the same convention. He's going to the police going, look, they're being, so, they're, they're being hypnotized. They're being sexly. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. All right, Mr. TSA, man. Yeah. But it's awesome he was great. that he saves the day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It, it worked to perfection. Um, I couldn't find a lot on uh, music apart from what I had mentioned oh, earlier. I actually have a lot of music. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so the, the Sound of Music by uh, Michael Abels. He He's known for... Or, orchestral and choral composing but um when peel was you know doing this movie he jordan peel said i was into this idea of distinctly black voices and black musical references so it's got some african influences some bluesy things going on but in a scary way in which you never really hear and so abel's score had to juggle all those different themes and he said jordan has seen every suspense thriller ever made and he's very eloquent about what he loved about the score. So the particular score, especially during like the garden party scene, he uh, Abel's composed a harp- harpsichord concerto in the style of Vivaldi, and he oh. he thought um, no, it, it uh, because you know Jordan wanted like African sounds and stuff. He completed it with the right temperature and foreboding feel um, for the harpsichord. Yeah, and costume designer Nadine Harris, since you're talking about that room, she outfitted the party guests in finery befitting a bespoke group of upper crust, you know, members of upstate New York. And that's the feeling, you know, I was expecting somebody to go, may you pass the Grey Poupon, (laughs) you know. Um, It was definitely like that, and then it just becomes so much more Then it just became so creepier. Now, here's another twist, too. So Stephen Root is there, the blind guy. Okay. Um, We know him from uh, Office Space uh, and such. And I didn't realize, like, I, I thought, because he was sitting alone, like, I thought he was gonna be a good guy. You know, he's the blind guy. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just a friend of the families who does these things. And so... I thought the twist was he wasn't blind. Oh. That, that's what I was thinking. I was like, mm, I'm not sure about him. If he knows who this guy is who never met, I was like, is he really blind? But little did I know. You know, but... And then when he says, well, I have an assistant who describes your work to me. Could that have been Rose? Maybe, Maybe. like, you know, Maybe. because we don't see... The assistant. You know, the, the assistant at all. Um, 
But yes, it was very well done. The other thing is, again, how is he being fed this information via TV? That's how we 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 learn about the coagula, which is like coagulation and Caligula all in one word. <laughs> you and know? in the videos of butterfly, the butterfly right? literally reborn, yep. you know, rebirth and being yep. reborn. Here's my thing too. If you revere your your grandparents or your mother and father so much, like would you make them the gardener and the maid, no matter what the color is? <laughs> like, okay, well, you love them so much. Oh, you're the gardener. I can't take maid. credit for this theory, but it's they just put on this act during these things. Ah, uh, mm. okay. But when when the black folk ain't around, they're, they're in charge. They're the dominant. Uh, interesting that you you mentioned ancestors. That, that takes a little bit back to the music as well. Um, they, you, we mentioned that there were songs that are underlying throughout this film that purposely actually, you know, are too on the nose. But uh, there's a song in this film, like near. It's actually the beginning of the film and end of this film. And I hope I don't butcher this, but it's a. It's called a Sekilizia Kwa Wahenga. It's actually a Swahili phase that literally translates to "Listen to your ancestors." And the the song, oh. yeah, the song lyrics loosely mean something bad is coming. Run, which correlates with the theme of the whole movie. Get out. Get out. So even throughout the film, they purposely placed music that tells you to get out. Right. Which yeah. I thought was brilliant. I mean, the title itself is just the most brilliant title ever. Yeah. It just is. You know, and for me, it's it's a what. what Again, layer upon layer upon layer, okay? Mm -hmm. When you look at horror movies, okay, the most famous, one of the more famous get-out lines comes from the original Amityville Horror, okay? Rod Steiger is the priest. He goes in to check and bless the house, and you get the get out, right? And then, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, made the phrase popular, I believe, in, like, Terminator or Terminator 2. Somebody goes, get out, right? But in every horror movie, right, it's, you know, if you're in with that crowd, what are people screaming at the screen? Get out! No. Get out! Like, what are you doing in that house? Get out! It's, it's brilliant. Well, to my knowledge, unless I'm mistaken, the title card didn't come up until the very end. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I think is obviously very purposeful because, you know, I, I think that's also commentary. Stay throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Now get out! Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, I thought, which I thought was very funny. Um, uh, anything else about music that you want to share, Marissa, or is that all you got? Uh, yeah, well, Abel's relied primarily on strings, harp, and percussive bowls to create the classical horror right. score. And there's some brass into it. That's used like midway. That and he purposely just made the scores dark, and he used samplings of creepier notes, such as you know, violin bowl on a metal bike spoke. So you know the actual physical items that creates um, that actual you know creepy sound effects right in his scores. So <clears throat> I think yeah. he did a great job because I was afraid. Yeah, at some point they actually. Uh, I mean, they they made this movie fairly fast. Um, they started filming in February of last year, so we're coming up on a year kind of anniversary um and so the fact i think most movies that we talk about have much longer in terms of shooting and editing um but they were able to do it so much so that it uh, it was the surprise midnight screening at the sundance film festival right 
Uh, even in January. I mean, yeah. But if you think about it, this is a thriller horror. There's not a lot of sound or like um, a lot of visual effects that they had to put into it. It's like straight film, yeah, live still, action. You, gotta, uh, thing, yeah. you can do yeah. things as fast as you want. Nothing makes up for the the creative process in terms of thinking and finesse. Right. right. You know? So people think like... Especially, especially in horror. Like... Um, Whenever it was we talked about this fight, comedy. Comedy has its beats. Yeah. And you gotta you gotta hit the beats. Well, horror has its beats too. Okay? And you gotta know when to hit those beats. And it is about <clears throat> a lot of it is about editing and what you're gonna do with sound design. Um, you know, horror is can be is very manipulative. Um and in, and in great part, like, you can do it through cinematography. You can do it through editing. You can do it through sound. I mean, how many horror movies uh, have you gone to that... Scare you with the sound they effect. They scare you with the sound effect more so than, like, somebody bumps into somebody and it's... Ten uh, Cloverfield so, Lane with the door. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, sometimes that's overused. And it's, to me, like, it's a harsh uh, manipulation. Uh Movies that come to mind, like the Event Horizon, most of its jumps come from loud sound, but it doesn't need to be. But you can use sound uh, as a as a harbinger of bad things to come, such as teacup. the teacup in this movie, Freddy Krueger's claws going up against a pipe, things like that, where you can manipulate sound to give a sense of foreboding and fear, and it can make you jump. Um, you know, we were talking about things to clue you in. Uh, this, there was a great thing in Cinema Blend. Uh, and one thing when you think about it, when Dean, the dad, um, <clears throat> talks about uh, Walter and Georgina, they, what were they hired for? They were hired to take care of the parents. <laughs> Which, yeah, they were. <laughs> Literally. Which we know. <laughs> you know? Um, which I thought, you know, when you think about it's these are great recalls to see this movie again and go, oh, very <laughs> clever, <laughs> you know. That's what I think is going to make this movie, um, in ten years or so, you know, you'll be able to call it a modern classic, a modern classic horror movie. You know, I think it'll remain. Well, I think it'll remain sad. Well, its relevancy won't go out of style. I don't know. I think like, the rewatchability factor. The, the oh, rewatchability factor. Because, I mean, now that we know the ending, if you go back to it, you can pick up, obviously, like, usually when you watch movies more than once, it's like you can always pick up on other things that, like, really clue it in. And right. like, ah, right. I get it. Yeah. You know? So I, I think this film had a lot of those moments where it was, like, it was all laid literally right in front of you and you just didn't pick up on it. Yeah. yeah. I agree. And, uh, you know, in terms of reception, I mean, it's it's getting amazing reception. Um, it was proje- projected, from what I found, to make twenty to twenty five million. Um, it did not make like that. It yeah. blew that out of the water with thirty three point four million, um, becoming number one at the box office. Yeah, let's talk about we'll talk about reception because not only is that just yet another case of tracking is so off, uh, um, <laughs> but let's talk about Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, for the longest, I, I I can't recall the last time I've seen a movie on Rotten Tomatoes remain at a hundred percent. Because usually, yeah, sometimes you log on 
a week to 10 days outside of a movie opening and you might see 100%. And that's usually because there are only five reviews in and they're the only five reviews that the studio is letting Rotten Tomatoes post for the time being. But as you get closer to release date, more reviews start filtering. So usually, if you're starting off at 100, usually means that you have a good, you could have a good movie, but you're going to notice that number drop by the time that movie opens. Not this movie. And as of this morning, this movie was still at 99%. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the audience, this is 89. Yeah, A- minus on CinemaScore, which I want to know what gave it the minus. Maybe it was those women you were yeah, talking I'm about. I'm telling you, it's the white women. <laughs> um, Double Ws. But I can honestly say, look, the movie's, the movie's out uh, at the end of February... There's no way people are going to remember it come October, November Academy Award time. The movie will have been out on On Demand. It'll have been out on Blu-ray by that time. People are going to be focused on those crop of movies that come out. At this stage, and horror usually gets dumped on anyways. We talked about that. You know, unless you're a Silence of the Lambs. But I see no reason why... The movie. Look, if I were Blumhouse and Universal, just keep on reminding people of an original screenplay, right? No reason why it couldn't get nominated for that. No reason why it couldn't get nominated for direction. No reason why it couldn't get nominated for 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 cinematography. Okay, I think I think it reaches those benchmarks as far as horror. Either that, or just make a damn horror category or something. Because at the end of the day, come for the 2017 Oscars, most likely this movie may be forgotten, you know, when it shouldn't be. I mean, for an original screenplay, uh, this is a pretty original horror movie. Yeah, hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for a pleasant surprise. You know, who knows? And Jordan Peele. Look, I, I will say this for Jordan Peele. Whatever he decides to do next... It's a blessing and a curse. He has really set a high bar for himself. Yeah. And, it's an extremely and he said, yeah, Jordan Peele also says, um, you know, if there's going to be a sequel to this, we, we really don't have word yet. But he says, uh, there are several other ideas that I've been germinating for the past eight years, and I'd like to do all of them as far as I'm concerned, my next decade or so, along with helping other untapped artists or untapped identities. Identities find their own platforms as a producer. I want to write and direct these four other social thrillers because he loves horror, he loves thrillers, and social thrillers. Yeah. So yeah. I, it might not be another horror, but I feel there are more movies that he's going to make in the vein of this, but not necessarily a Get Out sequel, just more films like this. Yeah, I agree. I just, like, he's set such a high bar for himself creatively yeah. as, a, as, like, as an artist that it's... To, to, to go higher, like you know, I, I well, would think I, that that would be his goal. I think I think he'll try to get higher, but I think um, I would put him in the category of Robert Rodriguez in the sense that you know Rodriguez for years has preached everyone. All these wannabe filmmakers say they want to make films, but they aren't making films, and he says that's the best education you can have. Right. And so in the case of Peel, or um, um, he's done all these. You know, sketches. He's done over 500 of them. That was his film school, in a sense. Right. You know, so he's done that craft. He's he's perfected those things. 
and now he's moving on to longer form. But he's done that, and so I think he, he's got he's got enough practice under his belt. It's, you know, um, even though this is his first length movie, but he's it's not a first time director. Right. No. I get that. Um, there is something I think that's somewhat interesting to note too. Right. Was you talked about box office. You know, as of March first, this movie has made forty six point two million. At the box office, okay. For a movie that costs four point five, and let's just let's just say, all in, it was probably twenty five, maybe thirty, depending on what Universal kicked in for advertising, hard drives, distributing the movie, uh, all the publicity. Good marketing, by the way, on this movie. I thought the trailer was pretty solid, uh, without giving away a lot. No. The Which trailer made it look like a straight-up horror. Yes, absolutely. I thought the trailer oh. made it look like a straight-up comedy, just like The World's End. Really? Interesting enough for me, yes. <laughs> See, exactly, and I think that's the thing, because I think some people thought it was thriller, some people thought it was horror, some people thought it was comedy. Yeah, I have to Which readjust my uh, expectation based so, on that. <laughs> well, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, 33 in its opening weekend, right? But catch this, it, it was... It was in under 3,000 locations. Yeah, it's All right. Had a per screen average of 12,000. You think that's going to expand? I think it's Expand? Good. I'm not sure if it'll expand, but will it, what it will have, <clears throat> um, it'll have some really good legs. Because outside of people like us talking about it, let's call ourselves tastemakers, okay? <laughs> um, audiences are really liking this movie. So I think we're going to have a, a decent hold, okay? Probably above average than what a normal, typical horror movie is going to have. Well, okay? all you have is Logan right now. I, Which, I really don't... There's there's a few others, but those are garbage. Yeah. Apart from I mean, Logan. Lo, 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 I think Logan Logan's takes the weekend. I think, okay. they, I think they do, but this stays... But this could this be number two. St- yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll have... You know, I think it'll have its legs for a horror movie. Um, more so than, than than what would be normal because it is so good and because so many people are talking about it. Um, and also, horror is not really a genre you see in February, March. So. And Donald Trump recommended it by saying, and as speeches get out. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That joke just came to me. If the president endorses it, it's good enough for me. Yeah, he, yeah, he endorses it. Yeah, I'm tweeting about this show right now. <laughs> Are you up? Um, all right. Well, now that I've derailed it, I guess it's time to head out. Um, thank you guys for, for watching us. Please let us know your guys' thoughts and opinions. Um, I'm, I'm very curious. There's so many different angles you can um, come at this movie from. So, very curious. And just uh, as a quick side tangent, real fast. uh, Let's see, where the hell is this? Um, 38% of the film's opening weekend was African-American. 35% Caucasian. So, that was the breakdown that I got. Um, So, it seems like, overall, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, Very, very, like I said, very, very curious to hear your thoughts on this movie. Um, Please let us know. In the meantime, at DMovie1701. Yeah, please support me on that tweeter. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm up. Uh, I have 11 and a half yes. followers right now. Yeah, the half is uh, some kid. And, there you go. And, and, yeah. Hey, kids are great. And Sheboygan. Hey. Kids are not to be discredited. Sheboygan, yeah. Michigan's great. At Serafini TV. That's right. Um, which is ironic for a movie network. Anyway, 
Do I uh, have to explain okay. this again? No. <laughs> at the Popcorn Talk, here at Popcorn Talk, lots of other great shows. Uh, speaking of the shows, we, we've had great episodes just on this show alone. Um, next week, we will be talking about Logan. Uh, we're also going to be talking today, Beauty and the Beast, the 1991 version. Obviously, when the new one comes out, we'll be talking about that. Um, Kong Skull Island, which actually has been getting some good reviews, I just saw. Yeah. And even going back Today. to our you know, our previous horror movies. We've done Annabelle, we've yeah. done Ouija. And City. Lights done Out. Lights Out. Uh, we haven't done do Halloween. We should do Halloween. One day. Uh, one day. <laughs> one day. Alright. Bye all. We're out. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.